you can be seated as our choir is making their way down. You can make your way to Matthew's Gospel. That's where we'll be this morning. We wrapped up uh, our series last week, uh, last Sunday on the Beatitudes. Going to be changing gears now through Easter. But while you're finding your place in Matthew's Gospel, would you join me for a time of prayer? You're welcome to come to this altar and pray if you'd like to, if you've got a need uh, in your own life or someone that you know, someone you care for, maybe someone in your family's lost and you'd like to just gather around the altar and pray or pray for uh, just this Easter season. Whatever the case is, for salvation, surrenderance, we're going to spend a few moments in prayer this morning. Our kind... And gracious Father, what a privilege it is to be able to gather together with the saints of God on the Lord's day and to lift up the name of Jesus together, people. And Father, we've praised you, we've worshipped you, we continue to do so through the preaching of God's word, our response this morning as well, so we know that you're here in this place. You are within every believer as our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So your presence is here. We don't have to invite you. You're already in his place. And when you're in our midst, Lord, the possibilities are endless. We ask, Father, today as we've gathered together that you would help us to be humble and submissive to the word of God, the truth of the scriptures. We ask, Father, that you would give us an ear to hear what you have to say to your church. Would you give us hearts ready to receive the word of truth today and lives that are willing to act on what we've learned today so that we're not just hearers of God's word, but we're doers. Father, we do pray that if there is any person in this place today, whether physically here with us or joining us online, we do pray that if they don't have a personal and saving relationship with you, that today would be that day where they bend their knee to a sovereign king and embrace the gift of salvation that's made available through a redemptive relationship with Jesus Christ, who have tasted and seen that you are good. We pray, Lord, that today you would speak to us fresh and new. Father, that you would challenge us that you would encourage us, that you would exhort us through your word, through your work of your spirit, even through a flawed preacher, that you would challenge us and exhort us to good works. Father, we come before you acknowledging that we are a needy people, but we have a wonderful Savior who commands us to cast all of our cares on Christ for he cares for us, and we do that today. We lay our burdens at your feet, our lost loved ones and family members, friends who are not believers. We, we trust you with them, Lord. But at the same time, we ask, God, that you would give us opportunities to share the glorious gospel with those who don't know you. Father, we submit ourselves to the authority of your word this morning, and we recognize that we do have an enemy, that it is not flesh and blood. It's not the Democrats, it's not the Republicans, it's not that we have a common enemy who is Satan. And we 
acknowledge that he desires to disrupt the work of God, to discourage the people of God. Father, we see him at work in our world even today. But Father, I thank you that he trembles at the name of Jesus. So while we have a foe, he is a defeated foe and Jesus Christ is Lord. And we call upon his name today. And we ask, Father, that he would not allow the enemy from stealing the word of God, the seed. May it fall in good soil. May it produce good fruit in the days to come. Father, this sermon that I'm about to preach is weak and vain without your power. Father, help me to stay tethered to your word and trust that you're going to speak to us. May we receive what you have to say in Jesus' name. If you agree with me in prayer, would you say amen? Amen. We're in Matthew this morning. Matthew, both of you are stuck, huh? <laughs> we'll, we'll get up, we'll all get up together. <laughs> That was the highlight of my day so far. <laughs> Been praying together. Praise the Lord. Any good to laugh in church? Did y'all know that was okay? <laughs> it's good. It's, it's really good. It is uh, Time Change Sunday, um, also known as the Baptist preacher's least favorite day of the year. Because I look out into a sea of sleepy faces right now. But I warned some on uh, our our social media account this week. Here's the way it's going to go. If you are caught napping today, at any point, there is a $25 fee that will go towards our Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Okay, And don't think I'm not looking. I'm not going to call you out, maybe. But I will mark your name down, and you will owe $25. If you go back to sleep after you wake up, it's an additional $50 added to that. We're going to reach our Annie Armstrong Easter offering goal one way or the other. Change happens fast, amen? Really fast. A lot can happen over the course of just a few days. Life can change over the course of just a few days. I was thinking about... um, when I was putting this message together several weeks ago, uh, our marriage, and it was marriage, when we decided to get married, in just a few short days, we, we became husband and wife when it was all final and the, the thing was sealed and two became one, and that's a change. Can anybody say amen in the house of God? Two very imperfect people come together. It's a, it's a change that takes place, a pretty dramatic one. Yesterday, we had all of our family over to our home to celebrate our oldest daughter, Kaylin's birthday. Um, she's not here with us today because it's time changing. She has an infant. In other words, she wasn't going to be here today. It's just the way it works because uh, infants don't do well with that clock. But we were able to ce- celebrate her birthday with her yesterday. And my goodness, how a baby changes things. Remember that. I remember that very clearly, clearly over just a couple of w- a week, seven days or so. I remember uh, Annette telling me one day we, we were living in Rockdale County, Georgia. She said, we've got to go to the hospital. This is about a week or so before we had the baby. I'm, I'm in labor, and it was our first one. 
And I thought, oh no, this is actually going to happen. I don't know if I thought it wasn't going to take place, but this is actually going to happen. And, and jumping in the car and rushing over to Rockdale Hospital, because I sure didn't want to do that there in the house or in the, in the car. But I remember running over the curb at the hospital, trying to get, I, I don't drive well anyway, and I jumped the curb to get in there. And I flew, and I remember getting to the doctor's office and her, checking her out, and I'm sweating bullets. I'm more nervous than she is about this whole thing, and, and she's in all of this pain. And it's any minute now, Kyle, any minute now. And I remember the doctor coming in and saying, Ma'am, it's gas. I remember that. <laughs> I remember that. But just a few days later, we uh, held Kaylin, our, our oldest daughter, for the first time. That's a game changer, isn't it? Wow. Over a course of just a couple of days, things changed. And it's not always positive either. Not long ago, just a few years ago, I remember celebrating Christmas with my dad. And then a few days later, preaching his funeral. A lot can happen in just a few days. That's certainly the case as it relates to the last week of Jesus' life before he resurrected from the dead on that Easter Sunday morning. In a span of just a few days, we go from hearing shouts of joy from a cheering crowd to shouts of crucifixion. Just a few short days, we go from the sound of palm branches being waved to the, the sound of a hammer striking iron nails as a Roman soldier, did his work. And this morning, we're going to begin to examine what happened during that last few days of Jesus' life here on earth before the crucifixion. We're going to be looking at what most liturgical church calendars call the Holy Week. Uh, I grew up calling it the Passion Week. And, and either one of those terms, either one of those identifying terms would be wholly appropriate and we'll use them interchangeably as we work through a series of messages together. And we're, we're going to begin here with the first day of the Holy Week and look at the events that transpired leading up to that day where Jesus would be crucified, that day where he would be resurrected. It's the beginning today of that last week. It's the inaugural beginning of things in place. There's a, there's a bin sitting somewhere with Roman spikes, six-inch six spikes sitting in that bin. Everything is in place. There's a crossbeam laying against a shed somewhere there in Jerusalem as we begin this week. There are thorns wrapped around a trellis just waiting for someone to come and cut them and fashion them into a crown everything's in place for the first day of the last week of Jesus life Pilate Pontius Pilate is concerned and his concern is growing by the moment as the pilgrims from all over the region have began to come into Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover feast the, the high priest Caiaphas and his father-in-law Annas they're really getting nervous is this crowd swells because there's a lot of talk about a man named Jesus. This man from Nazareth who is every bit as polarizing as he is captivating. The disciples who had been with Jesus for some time, they're, they're filled with nervous anticipation. They don't know exactly what's happening, but they can sense there's something different taking place this week. 
There's something going on. There's something in the air right now. Something's coming, but we, we don't know exactly what it is. Judas, one of them, can't look his master in the eye. On this last week of Jesus' life, there are Roman centurions and guards. They're, they're standing ready to quell any uprising. Jewish authorities have their eyes peeled. They're looking. They're looking for Jesus on this Passover festival. They're lying in wait and they're, they're desiring to trick him into speaking some words to say something that, that might violate or even seem to violate the law that they've made. And as this week begins, Jesus is heading into Jerusalem. That's not rare for Jesus. In fact, that would be a pretty common trip for Jesus. Jesus was a devout Jew, Mike. His family was a devout Jewish family. And being a devout Jewish family, each year Jesus would have at least once a year made a pilgrimage, made a journey into Jerusalem for this great feast, for this great festival. This was normal activity for Jesus. And aside from just the natural religious implications of this festival, this Passover feast was like a family reunion of sorts. People would get together that they haven't seen each other in, in 364 days. They would connect and reconnect with people all over the city. But, but Jesus, on this journey, it's a little different. This is not just a journey for Jesus on the beginning of this holy week. This is a mission. Jesus is on a mission. And even the angels who filled Bethlehem's sky... About 33 years prior to this, as Jesus was born in that Bethlehem's manger, they know that this is not just an ordinary journey into Jerusalem for Jesus because hinged on this week is the door to eternity. And this triumphal entry that we're going to be reading about this morning is recorded in each of the Gospels, and they're not contradictory. One just adds a little unique perspective as we go. This is more than just a colorful story that, that looks really good depicted in the illustrated children's Bibles that we have. Or some of you, how many of you remember the flannel graph days? It's more than just, it's more than just that. This this. Understanding of Jesus coming into Jerusalem helps us to better understand what his mission was to begin with. Prior to this day that we're going to be reading about in just a few moments, Jesus had pretty much refused any public acknowledgement of the fact that he was the long-awaited Messiah. If you think about it, most, the vast majority of Jesus' ministry prior to this day was conducted outside of Jerusalem. There no intensification of conflict with Jewish authorities before this day would actually come to pass. But now it was time for the Holy Week, the Passion Week, the most important week in human history to begin. So join me in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. We'll read 11 verses, and I want to share with you three things from these 11 verses that we see. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives... When, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. 
This was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, love of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had commanded them. They brought a donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went out before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. This morning, I want to share with you three things. Number one, the revelation. The revelation that this day brought. Secondly, the reception that Jesus receives. And thirdly, the redemption that Jesus made possible. Let's begin with the revelation that this day brought. The revelation that this day brought. You see, this story that we've just read, though it's a familiar story, and sometimes familiarity, some of the details and the meaning and the significance is lost on us because we've just seen it so many times. But this story reveals something powerful. In verses 1 through 3, again, it says, Now, when they draw near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives. They're making their way into Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples stop near the Mount of Olives at a place called Bethpage. Now, Bethpage, if you look up the original definition of the word crudeness, a place of crudeness, uh, and another meaning for it, unripened vines. Okay, it's a place of crudeness, unripened vines. Here's what it means. Let me give you the Kyle International Version. This is a podunk town. Okay, it's podunk. There, there's just not much to Bethpage. This is not exactly a, a booming metropolis that we're talking about here in this text at all. And this morning, when, when we're seeing this, this text about Bethpage, I want you to imagine with me what Bethpage would have been like on this morning where Jesus is coming to town. It's like every other morning in Bethpage. The, the sun comes up early like every other morning in Bethpage. We know this. We, we know that it begins with the sound of merchants opening up their shops, farmers preparing to go out into the fields because this season was the planting season. We know that this day would have began with, with moms busying themselves with the chores they had for the day. It was like any other morning in Bethpage, except for one home. There's one home that it, things would have been a lot different that morning. And it was the home of two sisters. Their name were Mary and Martha. They had a brother, Lazarus. Just a few days ago, old brother Lazarus, the sitting in the lazy boy, was dead. But Jesus had called Lazarus from the grave. He, he, He'd walked out alive. 
And, and now they're there in Bethpage in their home. They stop by Jesus and his disciples, but Jesus is not there to stay at this house. There's no doubt they're still rejoicing. They're still celebrating Jesus' miracle. Lazarus is alive, but, but Jesus is not there to stay on this day. And, and it's there in Bethpage at this home where the Holy Week really begins. And strangely enough, it begins with a donkey. With a donkey. In our text, Jesus instructs two of his disciples, and we don't have them mentioned here in this text, which ones, there's an obscurity there, that's a sermon in and of itself, to go and get a donkey. Go to a nearby village, bring back a donkey. In Matthew's account that we read, Jesus instructs his disciples to go get two donkeys, actually. There's a mother and a young colt that had never been ridden. It was on the back of this colt. This unbroken cult that, again, that is a sermon in and of itself. But imagine this scene with me. It's about a three-mile ride from Bethpage, where this journey begins to the city of Jerusalem. Is it quiet? Is it silent? Is all that you hear the shuffling of feet on the dusty streets of Jerusalem or the hoofs of these donkey as it walks alone? We don't know if it was quiet or not. What we do know is while the journey into Jerusalem may or may not have been quiet, the city of Jerusalem itself is anything but quiet. Oh, this is a big deal going on in Jerusalem. It's time for the Passover festival. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that when it was time for the, the Passover festival, the population of Jerusalem would swell to upwards of 3 million people who would come into this small city, this relatively small city. It was packed, teeming with people. There would be music and laughter and the sound of children playing out in the streets, the smell of food. It would have been an incredibly festive atmosphere. But, but this year, on the first of the week, it was also an incredibly tense atmosphere. And it was always tense in Jerusalem. By the way, it's still tense in Jerusalem. But this week was particularly tense because there was a political tension that was growing. You could cut it with a knife. Jerusalem wasn't free they were under roman rule and and rome had a job to do keep jerusalem under wraps don't let things get out of hand and there were three political parties in judaism that were running the show if you will there in jerusalem of course there were the pharisees the the pharisees were teachers of the law they they tolerated rome's oppression though they didn't certainly didn't want Rome's oppression. They believed it would eventually end, but they tolerated it for the time being. There were the Sadducees. There was a high-class upper echelon on the, the totem pole, if you will. They ruled the temple complex, and, and they were as corrupt as the day is long. They were in cahoots with the Romans. They cooperated with the Romans fully, and then there were the Zealots, and, and the Zealots were Jews who desired to overthrow Rome. And, and they kept daggers under their cloaks at all times for opportunity to assassinate Roman leaders. And they often attempted to do just that. 
So you've got this conglomeration of tension that's there. And then you have the Romans themselves. You had people like Pontius Pilate that we're familiar with this name, or Herod Antipas. And they've, again, they've got this one job. And their heads are on the line, by the way, with this one job. And their one job is this. Just don't let them get out of hand. Just don't let, don't, don't let anything happen. Don't, don't let them get too rowdy. Just, just don't let them become a problem for Caesar. So we have a recipe. It's a perfect storm. A recipe for trouble there on Passover as the people began to flood into the city. But it wasn't just a political tension. It wasn't just the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, who were kind of warring with one another. That's not where the tension really lied, though it was certainly there. The tension revolved around a name. Jesus. Jesus. Everybody was talking about Jesus. In the barber shops around Jerusalem, and this is the name that people would be speaking, Yeshua. They were talking about Jesus. Around the dinner tables, people were talking about Jesus. His name was being uttered in the marketplace. Everybody was talking about Jesus. And it had been this way for a while. Jesus spoke with an authority that you could not deny. Everybody was talking about the authority by which Jesus spoke. He, he, he challenged religious leadership of that day. And by the way, you did not challenge religious leadership of that day, yet he did. Everybody was talking about Jesus. There were miracles attributed to this man. Just a few days ago, remember, again, Lazarus was dead. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And I've said this before, but we need to reiterate, he didn't just say come forth, because if he had just said come forth and not been specific, every dead person would have got out of the grave. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus got up, walked out of the grave fully alive. Everybody's talking about Jesus. And because of this and more, the animosity of the religious leaders towards Jesus was growing to a point where, where they had, in essence, among themselves put out a bounty on the head of Jesus. An all-points bulletin, if you will, had been issued. You can imagine because of this, and this is widely known, that the crowd therefore Passover, everybody's talking about Jesus, but they're probably thinking this at the same time. No way he shows up here. No way he's coming here. Not with the Pharisees. Romans even got it. There's no way he shows up here in Jerusalem. He stays on the outskirts, out at the Mount of Olives. He's not coming here. And then somebody runs back into town. I said, y'all ain't going to believe this. I, I was out and, and, and I saw, y'all ain't going to believe this. He's coming. Jesus is, is coming into town. And then our account says this, this large group of people, they rush out to, to meet Jesus. And by the, time, by the time they get to the Kidron Valley, that's just outside of Jerusalem, he's surrounded by people that are singing and, and people who are shouting and dancing and, and chanting. And the gates of the city swing open. And here he comes, the king, riding on the back of a donkey. Imagine what the Roman authorities had to be thinking. Think about that for a moment. What the Roman authorities must have been thinking as they watched this 
king riding on the back of a colt, a foal, into town. Think about it for a moment. When, when they see him coming, now, now keep in mind, when a king comes into town, when a king comes into Rome, when, when, when Roman generals or war heroes or kings come, they would do so in pomp and circumstance. They would be riding great war horses, surrounded by marching soldiers with all the regalia and swords drawn. And, and here, here comes Jesus, the king, making his grand entrance into town on the back of a borrowed donkey with, with a, a saddle of, of makeshift cloaks surrounded by an army of common Jews whose weapons were palm branches. As the Romans see Jesus coming, I would imagine they laugh. It certainly wasn't anything that they should take seriously. This is no legitimate threat. They were always on the lookout for anyone who, who claimed any kind of authority because it was viewed as treason against Caesar. But a carpenter king from the back, on the back of a donkey from Nazareth was not a legitimate threat in their eyes. I think, for me at least, that explains why the Roman authorities sat idly as he came into town. But the Jews didn't, did they? The Jews didn't sit idly. In, in, there was prophecy being fulfilled in verses 4 and 5 of our text. It says, This was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Jews that were gathered there in Jerusalem were steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures. They had studied them thoroughly, particularly any, any prophecies concerning a coming Messiah. So they had no doubt, they had memorized the words of Isaiah the prophet. When Isaiah said a Messiah is coming, he will be, he will be a prince of peace, a mighty God, everlasting Father. The government would be upon his shoulders. He's going to usher in a kingdom that will have no end. That's, that's what they knew. They had they'd memorized the words of Micah that from Bethlehem would come a redeemer. They'd studied the words of Hosea that out of, out of Egypt would come a redeemer. These oppressed people were longing for a Messiah to come, and they see Jesus coming into town on a donkey. And while the Romans might have laughed, the Jews would have recalled the words of Zechariah the prophet who 500 years prior to this day spoke these words in Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. The Jews see Jesus coming. They immediately know what this signifies. A fulfillment of prophecy. Just as his birth in Bethlehem had fulfilled the prophecy of Micah, his trek from Egypt had fulfilled the prophecy of Hosea, his entrance into the holy city on the back of a donkey fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah. There was one commentator that wrote that Jesus fulfilled, just in the scriptures alone, Jesus fulfilled 324 individual messianic prophecies. We're not going to go through all of those today. You're welcome. His entrance into the, into the city on this day, while laughable to the Romans, would have been understood by every Jew who bore witness to it. It was revelation of prophecy fulfilled, which begs the question, 
how did they receive him? If this is revelation of prophecy fulfilled, how did they receive him? What's the reception of the crowd? Look with me. We find it in 6 and 8. The disciples went and did just as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, set him on them, and a very great multitude branches from the trees and spread them onto the ground. So as the procession makes its way into the holy city, the, the crowd swells only more. So this great crowd of people who have, have ran out to the Kidron Valley to surround Jesus and to, to shout and wave branches, that, that crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger as He's coming into the city. The, the shouts of the people get louder and louder and louder. The lines of the street are on both sides. People are taking off their, their cloaks and they're laying them along the path. This would be kind of like the Hollywood red carpet treatment they're, they're lining the path for Jesus to come through town and they begin to shout and they shout two things specifically in verse 9 we saw them the multitudes who went before them began to cry out saying Hosanna to the son of David blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna means save us now that's what it means save us now blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord again this is not coincidental they knew the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118, 5 and 6. Save now, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The reaction that the crowd gave that day, when we look at it, we can only conclude that they believed, at least for a moment, that this man riding into town on the back of a donkey was the long-promised Messiah who has come to deliver them. And they were right. They were right. Now it's often overlooked, but again, before this day, even after performing miracles, you'll remember Jesus would tell the crowd not to spread the word. And there are a thousand reasons for that, and we could go into them. I think one of them is because he wanted people and desired people to praise him for who he was, not just what he could do. To praise him for, for being the gift, not just giving gifts. That's still true, by the way. But here on Palm Sunday, he gladly accepts the praise of the people. In fact, he would consider on this day anything else to be abominable. We see that clearly. The Pharisees see these crowds, and, and they, they're chanting for him. And the Pharisees go to Jesus, and they demand, you tell them to stop praising you you tell them to be quiet and here's what jesus says in luke 19 40 i love this he answered and said to them i'll tell you if these should be silent the stones would immediately cry out in praise if, it, if this crowd wasn't chanting and shouting hosanna and the highest creation would hey i've seen some of y'all when we're singing if you won't cry out i will their rocks will cry out. They're waving palm branches. Again, this is all throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Jews were instructed to wave palm branches at the Feast of Tabernacles. This is to celebrate deliverance from the Egyptians. 200 years before this Palm Sunday that we're reading about today, there was a, an event called the Maccabean Revolution. 
And, and this is where the, the Jews overthrew the Syrians and they celebrated by waving palm branches. 30 years after Jesus dies, the Jews mint a coin with the image of a palm branch on it to remind them of the freedom that is possible. The point is this, the waving of palm branches at the triumphal entry of Jesus is a symbol. They're saying, waving these branches, the Messiah has come. The Messiah has come. So the reaction of the crowd is praise. And, and there's something that takes place that's interesting to me. Only Luke's account actually records this aspect of it. But at, at the height of the celebration, the Bible says Jesus begins to weep. He begins to weep. In, in the midst of all this joy, Jesus sees the future very clearly. He, he knows on this Palm Sunday that Good Friday was just days away. He looked beyond the, the cheering crowd. He looked at them and he, he saw the mob that would soon demand his execution. And in Luke 19, 41 and 42, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Jesus knew betrayal was coming. Jesus knew that sweat drops of blood would flow from his brow in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knew that his disciples would abandon him. He knew that the nails were coming. He knew that a crown of thorns would be forced upon his head. He, he knew that the religious leaders were plotting and scheming even in this moment to bring an end to his life. He knew that the crowd that was chanting Hosanna in the highest would be shouting Crucify him, not Barabbas. We want him. In just a few days, yet he was on a mission. In verse 10, and when he came into Jerusalem, all of the city was moved, saying, Who is this? That's interesting, isn't it? The Hebrew word here means stirred. They were stirred. A good translation of that was shaken. The crowd that day was shaken. You ever, been, you ever been stirred or you ever been shaken? When you're stirred or you're shaken, you've, you've got to do something about this information that you have. You can't just sit on it. You've got to do something with it. And, and this crowd is, they're, they're shaken. Who is this man is the question. This indicates they understood the, the messianic prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus, but they just weren't sure what to do with it. They see him coming. They're shouting, Hosanna and the highest. They're quoting scripture. They're waving palm branches. All of these things indicate that's him. That's him. The one that Isaiah and Micah, and that, they all spoke of this man. And here he comes. They, they, they understood Jesus was a fulfillment, but they just didn't know what to do with that. So the question, who is this man, is answered in this way in verse 11. The multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. You see what just happened? They acknowledged the facts, but they never placed their faith. They were curious, but not converted. They responded, but they did not receive. 
when Jesus comes into town, they acknowledge who he is, and they become fans, but not followers. I would argue that in our world, things are much the same. There are people all over. Here we are in the Easter season. name of Jesus is still talked about a lot. That, that name, that name still, is still, is, is still polarizing. That name still does bring separation. That name still does call men, women, boys, and girls to a decision. We're talking about Jesus all the time. If you're on the, you're talking about the scriptures. What does this mean? What does that mean? What's hate speech? What's not hate speech? This all, Jesus is the word. It's dealing with Jesus. I would acknowledge as much as we're talking about Jesus, there are still people that are ready to acknowledge the facts, but not to place their faith. I would contend that our world is filled with fans of Jesus, but not followers. To be a fan of Jesus is to appreciate him, to appreciate what he's done, to cheer him on, and his work in the world. That's to be a fan. That's what we do for our, our Clemson Tigers or South Carolina Gamecocks or whoever we root for. We, we cheer them on. And most everybody that I deal with and that you deal with has no problem cheering Jesus on. But Jesus said, if any man is to follow me, he's got to pick up his cross. Die to himself to follow me. Being a fan of Jesus will not gain anyone entrance into heaven. Only being a follower. Which leaves us here. The redemption that's possible because of the Holy Week. And we'll get into this over the next several weeks. But as I read through this passage, I'm just struck with these thoughts and I'm finished. The first one is this. Please hear my heart. Spiritual opportunities don't last forever. Spiritual opportunities don't last forever. These people had a great opportunity right in front of their eyes. That opportunity passed them by. Spiritual opportunities don't last forever. That's why the Bible teaches that the time is now. Salvation is now. God is not required. Please hear my heart. God is patient. Thank God for his patience. God is not obligated to repeat himself. He, has no, he is not obligated. Praise God that he does often repeat himself. He is not obligated to. If the Lord is calling upon you to be saved, be saved because spiritual opportunities don't last forever. 
They don't last forever. If the Lord is calling upon you to, maybe you're in Christ, but a, a spiritual decision, something he's dealing with you on, a next step, forgiveness, whatever the case might be, spiritual opportunities don't go. And we put off and we put off. The callous on our heart gets harder and harder and harder until it's impenetrable. Spiritual opportunities don't last forever. Secondly, it's not enough to be interested about Jesus or even excited about Jesus got to follow Jesus. That's the calling. That's the calling. And lastly, salvation came into town on the back of a donkey. Salvation is here today. It's here today. Don't let it pass you by. Don't let it pass you by. Would you bow with me? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation a hymn of response to the Word of God. And I, I trust as we have opened God's Word together, I pray that we've rightly divided the Word of truth. I, I, I believe with all of my heart that God speaks through His Word, that it never returns void. I, I believe that. I'm just sold. I'm thankful for that because I'm such an imperfect messenger. It's such a perfect Word. And I pray that God's used it. I know that he has, but how will we respond? Maybe this beginning of the Easter season, maybe we would be here, whether in person or online, and say, I'm not following Jesus. I'm a fan, but I'm not following him. I like the idea of Jesus. I even like what he does, but I'd rather live my own life and call my own shots. The Bible teaches that we've all sinned and fallen short of His glory. The wages of our sin is death. But the gift of God is Jesus Christ. He came, He bled, He died so that we could live. And the Scriptures teach if we will repent of our sins and trust only in Him for our salvation, He'll give us eternal life. That can be a decision that you make today. I can't make it for you if I could. I most certainly would. It's a decision I've made in my life. I'm not going to get to heaven by my own works, my own merits, but only through what he's accomplished on my behalf. Would you ask him to forgive you, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness? He'll do just that. And maybe today as we've gathered, you say, well, I am saved. I'm in Christ. I know the Lord. But I'd be honest. Maybe there's some things or a thing he's really been dealing with me about. And as he passes by in this church today, like he passed by that day in Jerusalem, I understand that I'm not going to be passing by forever. Spiritual decisions, they don't last forever. But I want to, I want to make it today and follow him. I want to head in his direction. Father, for salvation, for surrenderance, I pray that you would give us faith. Faith's a gift, Lord. Ask for it. Give us faith to respond to your word, to your spirit's leadership upon our lives, that you might be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.